Ziyad. I've seen you quite a bit the last few weeks. You were on the MTV podcast with me. It, yep. The episode came out last night. Mm -hmm. We spoke about your political career. We spoke about waste management. We spoke about things that you're known for and things that maybe you're pushing for. But I thought we could take this opportunity to really celebrate your work. I think this is a good place to do it. You're Thank one you. of the most passionate people I know in civil society. You don't stop working, even against all odds. And you're still coming up with prototypes. You're still ensuring that MPs reposition themselves on draft laws. You're not leaving this country. And I think you ended the MTV podcast by saying, there's nowhere else to be. Yeah, I have, uh, I have nowhere else to go. I feel the same way. So let's actually add to the MTV podcast by maybe starting with where we left off. Why do you feel that way? The both of us have this opportunity to seek employment away from here. And I'm going to guess, as a waste management expert, or as somebody that's devoted their time and effort, not just to recycling, but to environmental protection. And I think I've heard you say this before, you could get further abroad, yet you're suffering here. So why are you here? And what exactly does Beirut mean to you right now? Okay, uh, first of all, I'm not suffering. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's set it, let's set the record straight from the beginning. I'm not suffering, but you know, um, I think, you should get him on WhatsApp and you'll feel otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I think the weight of the, of the work I do with my team has more uh, value and more depth and more potential here than anywhere else. Um, I, grew up, I grew up in this neighborhood, actually. Uh, when I was young, uh, there was a train that used to come to Marm Khayil. It, it, it did not bring passengers at that time. It was just cargo train. So I know this area very well, and I, uh, I grew up in this city, and I love this city. And this city is, uh, it's, it's really fascinating. It, it keeps on dancing on the shore of, of the abyss. And sometimes it jumps, and somehow <laughs> it, it goes back up. How? I don't know. And... Um, you know, you stay where, where, you feel, where you feel the love, when you feel loved and where you have a lot of people that you love and where you love what you do. Uh, this is why, I mean, I could go back to Rutgers University and do research there, but um, I mean, sorry, New Jersey, but I'm, I'm not too keen on going back to New Jersey. It's, it's like that, you know, it's... It's not always where you make the most money that is where you are the most happy. I share that sentiment. Hence, I do a podcast. <laughs> but I agree with you. But, you know, when we speak in, in private and in public, you have a healthy time frame. And I've heard you mention this many times, your early childhood, growing up in this part of the city, there's things you remember with fondness. It could be something superficial, like the old cargo train that yeah. parked in Madam Khayyad. You fast forward to 2023, I'm going to speculate that a lot of that childhood innocence that you grew up with simply doesn't exist anymore. It could be something like that. It could be actual decay. It could be urban planning gone wrong. 
It could be environmental protection that's gone astray. So in your lifetime, you've seen a very, very tough civil war that destroyed a lot of Beirut. You've seen post-war reconstruction that destroyed a lot of Beirut as well. And now you're seeing in 2023 the aftermath of the largest non-nuclear blast in modern history destroying this part of Beirut. So from your side, how do you still retain that optimism? Because I'm always, I'm always impressed that you're able to look to the future knowing just how bad things are right now. So where does that come from? Actually, I'm going to against that. And uh, this may sound odd a bit, but uh, when I was growing up, the furthest you could go on this street was probably at the end of the Sacré Coeur. This is during after, the Civil War. After, yeah. You know, at the Sacré Coeur, there was a ditch. Mm. And I think on one time they placed two shipping containers, one above the other because of sniper fire. So we came a long way. We came a long way. Uh, we also discussed that in the podcast. Societies tend to mature like people do. Okay? And... I'm sure we have a million reasons, if you read the news and watch TVs and what have you, we have a million reasons to, uh, to, to go and kill each other as Lebanese, but we don't do it. We don't do it. Why? I don't know why per se, but I think we've all matured. A lot of this generation that is now running the, the country and probably the generation just before them, they lived the wars. They lived the wars, and it's, historically speaking, a generation that fights one war very seldom fight another one. Very seldom. And I don't, I don't see where and why and how we're going to have another civil war. It's just not logical. Okay? We all live in a decaying system. Let's, let's, let's agree on that. It's a system that is not viable anymore, okay? Uh, today, the, the, the exchange rate is hitting uh, ridiculous uh, levels. And yet, this morning, they decided we're going to, as, as a measure to make more money for the state, we're going to increase the tax of the uh, custom dollars from 15000 to 45000 So. You're dealing with people who are really detached from any economic reality because, and I tell you why I stay. I stayed because I want to see the end of the militia rule. We live under a militia mentality. You don't see the militias on the streets, practically, you know, except in few areas. But you see their work in the management of this, of this country and on, of this city. A militia mindset never gives you anything. A militia mindset only knows how to take. And for me, what makes me happy and what makes me hopeful, I'm seeing it as, a, as, as someone who's been in, in, in professional industry for the last 30 years. I see how a system can stop working. A, a government is just like a company. If you don't run it well, if you don't run it with, with care, with integrity, the company goes bankrupt. And we're, we're going bankrupt because of this militia mindset of 
managing things? I'll narrow it down at least to what this conversation will focus in on, which is waste management and also your work that exists with or without elections. So I'll sprinkle politics into the conversation, but I'll just give you my way of looking at what you're describing. We both are roughly the same age. We're from the same generation. So we both remember downtown during the Civil War. We remember the Normandy trash dump. Sure. Normandy was not just trash. It no. was everything from the Civil War thrown into the sea. Normandy is gone. They found a lot of bodies in Normandy, by the way. They found a lot of... And actually, it, I, maybe you remember this, the explosions that were happening underneath the ground because sure. of gas that was trapped. Yeah. So, and and uh, also munitions. When, when they dug deep enough, right. some, of the, some of the warriors had, uh, had died with their munitions there. So the Normandy dump is my earliest memories of Beirut. You fast forward, I'm 41, you're late 52. 52. 53, sorry. What's that? 53. 53. Oh, you're lying? 52, yeah, 53. I don't know. <laughs> I'm 40, 41. Yeah. Well, you know, give or take. At this age in our prime, we have seen another trash dump exceed Normandy. Yeah. Quarantina Jaladib, whatever that extension. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Jdeide. All the way through Daura. Mm. This is a massive dump that outweighs Normandy. That's without civil war. Yeah. And that's and there's another major one which we do not see, which is the Costa Brava one. But you can smell when you come in the airport. I mean, I think even at this point, they still shoot geese that flock yeah. from the trash to let planes land and take yeah. off. So that kind of chaos in environmental degradation across every city on the coast. Saida, Tripoli is massive. This is Beirut. Baalbek. Baalbek. And it's growing. Yeah. And it keeps growing. So I'm really trying to see where you see optimism in, in policy and planning when you know in our lifetime that landfill will just keep growing and growing. I mean, we've had that discussion with whoever was in charge of the waste management file at least 20 or 22 years ago. And we said, guys, what you are, the model you are following is not a viable model. You're going to take us from one landfill to the other. But again, the political, uh, the political atmosphere of the country was that, yalla, khalas, laissez faire. Laissez faire, you know, this is one, you know, we're going we're gonna to take the garbage off the streets. We're going we're gonna to show that this is a clean. Uh, and, and they came up, they, came, they did not come up with a waste management plan. They came up with a waste transportation plan. They, they covered the two most probably richest areas of the country, which is Mount Lebanon and Beirut. They have the richest municipalities, okay? And they, they came to them. And they kind of inflicted the, the, a contract upon them. And they said, listen, you either partake in this contract or you have no waste management. They left no choice for them. And of course, they did not invest in the infrastructure of recycling. Recycling is expensive. Recycling is expensive, but it's less expensive than paying hospital bills. This is what I think most environmentalists, and, and, and me included, failed to do to create 
in a, in a simple way, the link between environmental degradation and health care cost. When you breathe polluted air, you're going you're gonna to end up paying for it in the hospital. Yeah. All kinds of pulmonary diseases, all kinds of cancers and what have you. So you were dealing with this mindset of people who could, could not see the linkage between what we are doing is bad because they were making a lot of money. We had, at one point, we had the most expensive tipping fee or, or cost per ton for, uh, for waste management in the whole area. In the whole area, we were paying $120, $130 to pick up garbage and take it and dump it in a landfill. And it took this crisis to kind of, we see all these kids now digging up the plastic. If you go to the dump in Jdeidi, in the morning, you see hordes of young people going in and you come back like a couple of hours later and you see them coming out with bag, huge bags filled with plastic. This was, this is a job we should have been doing in a more proper way. We should have a, a, a regular factory where we bring this waste, we, we, we add value to it. We sort it, we make compost, we, make, uh, we take out all the recyclables, and you know that we developed all the technologies to uh, not needing a landfill. You don't have to landfill anything. I'll just interrupt, though. I remember from 2015, roughly, until really the elections, and I had this conversation with other environmental experts. One is in parliament now, a friend of ours, Najat Salida. Najat, yeah. I even had an extended conversation with Nasser Yassin about this, the current Minister of Environment. And many in civil society, including yourself, were completely opposed to an incinerator. Of and course. I think most, if not all, of civil society advocates said no way. To me, that's the only accomplishment that's been made in this sector, which is preventing a giant incinerator from polluting Beirut. You know that I took a crew and I went to Denmark for 10 days to Denmark. To Denmark, to a, a city called Odense. And we spent 10 days in their incinerator. We shot a documentary, we called it An Incinerator for Beirut, with a question mark. You spent 10 days in an incinerator? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not 24 <laughs> not, hours, okay. but, but <laughs> yeah, it took us 10 days to, uh, to, uh, to understand, you know, we wanted, we wanted to put a scientific end mm. to this nonsense of a discussion that was going on. Uh, the, the municipality was pushing for the, uh, for the project as a solve-all, do-all solution for our garbage. But they, they failed to look into a lot of scientific details which our waste did not match. And this is why we went, we went to Denmark. And we shot a documentary, and it was this documentary. I mean, the, the current uh, president of the municipality blames that uh, documentary for the failure of the project. Right, so that, yeah. isn't, that is an accomplishment. And I tell you why, I yeah. tell you why, without boring anyone. But there is a critical issue that no one was talking about. When you burn garbage, when you burn garbage with plastic and with organic material and with what have you, there's an there's two kinds of ash, a fly ash and bottom ash. So the, the, the most dangerous one is the fly ash because it has a lot of really carcinogenic poisons. Denmark is five times the size of Lebanon and they only have, 
about 5 million people. Right. So it's not dense, yeah. but they have a lot of territory. They have five times the territory that we have. Mm -hmm. They have 28 incinerators. There are 28 incinerators in Denmark. Imagine that not one Danish MP agreed to create a landfill for the fly ash of the incinerators of Denmark in their area. So Denmark had to sign a treaty with Norway. Norway has one of those uninhabited islands right, way yeah. up there near the, <laughs> the North Pole. And they have a ship that comes on a regular basis. It collects all the fly ash from, uh, from the 28 incinerators. It sails all the way up to that island where no one lives. And they have a landfill there, a sanitary landfill for that fly ash. You come here and you tell the municipality you have a problem with the fly ash. They say, no, 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 don't worry about it. We're going to put it in asphalt. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna asphalt the road with it. So this is, this is the type of ignoramuses you're dealing with. What's okay. the word? What's oh, the word? They have Ign they had ignoramus? Ignoramuses, yeah. Oh, wow. They're like, okay. uh, yeah. I had another argument also with the president of the municipality, which was worse. He wanted to mix it with cement and use it in buildings. So I said, I mean, can you imagine if, if a young couple, they have their newborn and they, they, they put them in a, in a room and that room is built with cement that has uh, fly ash in it. And this kid, this poor baby, is breathing in fly ash from, uh, from the incinerator. So there were those details that they did not, that they did not comprehend or they did not want to um, put forth to the public. They were lying their asses off on all types of security issues. This is one. Another thing was, you know, we're not going to bore the people with it, but technically speaking, our garbage, we're, we're Mediterraneans, we're Arabs, we're Levantine. Give us any uh, adjective you want. Why? Because we cook everything from scratch. So we generate a lot of organic. And organic is water. So these guys, these geniuses, wanted to burn the organic as well. And we told them, you cannot burn it because... Again, they wanted to solve the electric, the power electric issue. They, at the beginning of the project, they were, uh, they were pushing the idea that not only are we solving the trash crisis, but we're going to solve the power crisis as well. We're going to generate electricity for the whole of Beirut. And then we had to sit down and, and compute that if you have this much organic matter, there is this much water in them, you're going to end up putting more fuel to to burn it, then you're going to be able to generate electricity. You know, what strikes me always here is I've had so many episodes, specifically since October 17, with so many people that have the answers to basic problems, including yourself. And it's always a disappointed, disappointed feeling to experience two things. Someone like you is not in parliament, but if someone like you were in parliament, you would be paralyzed with your work. Yeah, that's, that's and I'd like to take the conversation there, and I'll sprinkle politics here without going too deep. I'd like you to reflect, having now experienced seven or eight months of not being in election mode, of not being an MP, of returning to what you do best. Are you relieved 
that you're able to work on your terms the way you're doing right now. And we're going to get into this, including your research center, the vertical forms that you brought some illustrations to elaborate, prototype and hôtel dieu, all type of work that you're doing. Is there a sense of comfort that you're not locked in a situation that has much more to do with regional affairs than parliamentary legislation? And a lot of petty issues as well. There, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very good friends with Melhem. I'm, I'm good friends with Najat. Uh, okay, Paula, we, we, we talk on a regular basis. I was uh, waiting, you, waiting for you to say Paula, but, but then no, you went back to Ibrahim <laughs> <laughs> Mnaimi also as yeah. a friend. So I, I see them wasting their time on, and energies on, 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 on petty, petty issues that really should not be, this is not the time that we should be squabbling about such petty things, one. And then two, to their credit, they are the front line, they are the front line of, the, of this combat or of, of this paire de manche, we say in French. Paire de manche means it's like, a, it's like a tennis match and it's like five sets and these guys are in the, in the, the match midst point. of the first set. Oh, I see. And yeah. they're hitting on the opponent, but they're getting hit as well, okay? Change happens very slowly. It happens very, and it's very painful. But remember, in 2018, there was only, there was only one MP outside the Manzumi or the, the Junta. One. Okay, I would now argue, I would argue she's less capable of doing what she wants today than she was in 2018. Okay, but it doesn't matter. We're talking numbers now. Okay, well, 2018 the, the, one. The 13 today are less capable than one in 2018. Yimkin, maybe. And that's how. That's why I'm bringing this up. Is that I would not want to see you paralyzed that way. Exactly. I, I don't want. I don't want that either. But let me predict something for you. Mm. 2026. The 13 number will jump to 40, not 26. You really think so? Yes. Do, you, do, yes. do I have permission to go down this road Please. with you? It's being recorded. It's being recorded and, and I'm on fire. You sure? I, because my politics stuff is coming back right now. Okay. I, ha I have to disagree. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we can remove this from the podcast if you want. We'll keep it for the audience. Don't remove anything. Ziad, what, um, are you, what are you drinking? Uh, sparkling water. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get him a drink. <laughs> how how do you say that? This did is the dynamic. Say, did you say forty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, that's triple, if not more. If not more. Yeah, because I see this. The system. The system is dead. They do not want to bury it. Those who benefit from the system do not accept the fact that their way is dead. Khalas. Q&A later. Q&A later. <laughs> By the Am way, I counting guys, on them to die? No, I'm counting on, on God to take okay. them. I'll, I'll say, I've, I forgot to mention, there will be a Q&A at the end and there's time to order as well. But I have this, to go down this road with okay, you. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, let, one second, one second. Let's just yeah. retract a bit and, and, and have a macro look. This is, listen, every other country around us, not just in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, in, uh, in South America, 
it was it was a gradual change they were you know and those 13 that you see right now people associate them as one block they are not one block these are 13 or 12 different individuals they were brought in because people were fed up with whatever they had before the 40 I'm talking about, they will not be a same block, but they will be different from... Oh, so 40 reform-minded MPs. Exactly. But we have now technically, if you, if you want to go down that road, loosely speaking, we have roughly 40 reform-minded MPs right now. Maybe. But no, what I don't like about this parliament, this parliament, you can bring it down to six blocks. Six blocks run by six people. The MPs in each block, they're yes-men. Are you, you you're familiar with, with a yes-man? This is someone who never stands up to the boss. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm. The problem with the 13 is there's no boss. We oh. have 12 We have 12 there bosses. There are 13 bosses. Exactly. Yeah. We have 12 bosses. But I think the appetite for the October 17 change-oriented MP, if I had to make, if I had to put money on this, it could be zero in 2026. I think the 13 are suffering for reasons that are beyond their control. And yeah. among, among them are decent people. This is why they have a tough fight. A tough fight. But they exactly. are laying the ground for the wave of the 40 that's going to that's gonna come back. You know what? We'll do an episode in four years. Inshallah. <laughs> but thank you for letting me go down that road. So I hear from you that you are relieved to not be there right now, but you still have hope for that crowd in four years. It's almost like a win-win a situation for your situation. Let's talk about... Vertigo. I'm relieved. I'm relieved because I value time very much. I mean, this is, this is something I, you know, uh, uh, I'm an industrial engineer by, uh, from my academic background and my master's is also in industrial engineering. And I was really lucky to be taught by like some really very veteran uh, professors. Uh, they were veterans from the golden age of American industry, mm. Ford Motor Companies, General Motors, um, International Paper. It was these big industries. And these, these guys always used to tell us, value time. Because if you lose money, if you lose money, you can make it up. But if you lose time, you can never make up time. I fundamentally agree with you. And I think that's exactly what's happening to them. However, this kind of battle, they need, you will need to lose time and lose energy. And you think that, what are we doing here? A lot of people now are saying, what is Milham and Najat doing there? This is the only weapon we have right now. This is, this is the only thing that they can do. And it was very disruptive. I actually, what they did uh, was disruptive. I think this is a very wild suggestion. Maybe some would agree, maybe some would oppose. I think they're better off resigning. I think resignation... No, you're not allowed to applaud. <laughs> you behave. <laughs> I think they're better off resigning out of principle, saying the battle is beyond them. And we'll, be I, doing, we'll be doing the other camp a huge service because you're bringing down the majority and mm. then, uh, no, I think resigning now. Listen, it's a really, it's I, a really I very think, I think all reform treacherous minded, game. All reform-minded MPs should be leading the charge of saying the battle is not in parliament. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But you know what? That's a nice. You know, you know the frame of mind I, I put myself in right after the elections. Mm. Okay. For me, there were like two roads. I say either I get involved with them as backup on the streets, do this, do that, mm. or my second option was put yourself in a frame of mind that the structure, the temple is falling. Mm. And eventually, you're gonna, we're going to need to rebuild. You have a way of looking into the future, which I think is healthy. Exactly. And all of your and ideas... This is, this is what keeps me optimistic, by the way. I think it's actually okay. a, it's a good so, skill to so have. The frame of mind that I'm in right now is that the moment we know, the moment we know that the system is not viable anymore, and this happens when they can no longer pay the salaries of the public employees, mm. they run out of hard cash, to import the basics that the country needs, fuel, wheat, medicine. Mm. At that point, and we're not very far away from that, at that point, the, the power or the sulta has no more power. I'll tell you what, we'll end the episode going back to this topic. If anyone wants to go deeper, this is exactly the stuff we talked about on MTV. It came out last night. So there's a political dimension to that episode. So we'll wrap it up with that. But I'd like to celebrate and honor the work you're doing as a civil society advocate. Let's go to vertical farming. You brought some... Vertical farming, it's not... Yeah, okay, so just to, to connect it to what we were just saying. Yes. So we put ourselves... I put myself in a frame of mind saying that, okay, at one point in time, everything is going to crumble and there's going to be a group of people that are going to band together and they say, okay, what are we going to do with electricity? What are we going to do with uh, water? What are we going to do with garbage? What are we going to do with this, with that, mm. with economic revival? With that? And I sit with a lot of like-minded people and we speculate, but we prototype as well. Because right. talk is cheap. Prototyping is hard. Okay? We will get into the other prototypes okay. as well. So... To bring it back to vertical farming, yeah. it was one of the idea that we wanna we wanna do zero waste to the landfill waste management for the city. Mm. Okay, it's a it's a dense city, it's heavily built. We have no spaces to landfill, so we we are we have no other way that to treat all our municipal solid waste. Mm. So. We came up with a technology called EcoBoard. This is a technology that transforms plastic bags or single-use plastics, all types of plastics, into panel boards. And then we dug even deeper and we said, okay, we're gonna take those boards, okay? And we're gonna create a vertical structure so we can plant more, so we can give food security to the city in first and then to this country. Okay, and I would like to uh, probably uh, let's let's pass it around for whoever wants to wants to see it. So, this is a structure entirely made out of waste, plastic waste. It's soil-based, not water-based. Okay, and in that soil, we're taking compost from the organic part of our waste as a city. We're turning it into compost. We're mixing it with wet soil and we're creating farms. Then we said, how big is this city? The city is 19.8 million square meters, and it's heavily built. 
So we said, okay, <laughs> if we want to plant 50% of that space, yeah. how many plants can we do using vertical agriculture processes? Mm. It's 1,782,000 plants. One building. One billion. One billion. One, one billion. billion. 782 million oh. plants. In, in Beirut? In Beirut, half. half in half of Beirut. Wow. Turned, <laughs> wow. Pass this around. And this as well. So, in a very crazy yet simple idea, if we, if we exploit 50% of the roofs of this, country, of this city, to create vertical farms, what this city achieves is food security. Go to any restaurant now. I work with I work with about four hundred farmers, and I called them last week. I called one of them. He plants lettuces, and I said, "How, how come a lettuce now sells for eighty thousand in the supermarket? Why?" So he started complaining. He said, you know that it cost half of that just to bring it down from Beka to Beirut. So you have a transportation issue. And now, if you follow a bit around the world, the, uh, there's a huge local food production movement. In some restaurants in Europe uh, or in California, on the menu, they tell you, if you buy this dish, yeah, the right. ingredients, how long they, were, they traveled before they get to your plate. Mm -hmm. This whole movement, form, form, to, uh, form to, to plate. Yes. It's, it's that. It's, it's those ideas that we want to plant locally. And there's a huge also on the other side, because they, you, know, you know that there's always a duality. Mm. There's a huge group of people saying that there's way too many people on the planet and, <laughs> and we cannot feed everybody. That's, that's utterly false. The planet is not well managed. The, 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 the planet, the system, the, the, the overlying economic system underlying the planet right now is greed. And, and there's not enough for anyone's greed. Okay? So... We stand behind this project. Uh, we believe in it. We've, we've already built a dozen vertical farms, probably two in Beirut, and the others were outside Beirut because it doesn't take a lot of space. So a dozen and two in the city. How and two in the city, yeah. We, we, we built one in the Burj Barajni camp. Oh, wow. Palestinian camp. And it was a wonderful idea, and it was a wonderful project. Is there a way to measure progress on this in a way that makes sense to what you're doing? In other words... It's still in its infancy stage, but the idea is there, and it has been tried. Mm. People are averse to new ideas. A lot of people are intellectually lazy. They, they do not want to leave their comfort zones. Okay? And this is why it takes... It takes a lot of time to implement new ideas. Would you consider this one of these types of prototypes that's been established, but maybe it's too soon to see whether or not this could be taken from a private initiative to something more public? Is it just too early in the 
I don't want to think that because <laughs> that means I have to die before my ideas oh. <laughs> spread. Uh, I'm, I'm, you said you're no, 51. I'm pushing. I'm pushing. I'm pushing for it uh, as much as we can. I think it, its time is now because it doesn't cost much. It's made from uh, it's made from local waste products. So you don't have to. The only problem it has is that it is energy intensive. Recycling plastic is energy intensive. This is why uh, Europe and the and the states used to dump their plastic on China until yeah. 2020. The Chinese said no more, and they all found themselves with a huge wave of plastic that they had no infrastructure to deal with, and now they ha they have to build it. I'll, I'll speculate here without. And I'll, I'll try to make sense as much as I can, given that this is one example. Uh, you mentioned economic crisis and energy crisis too. I'm assuming this is something that is needed more now than ever in recent history. And there's a prototype that you're looking at. Maybe it's too soon to see if it sticks in a public way. We have solar energy. And allow me to ask you a, maybe a more hypothetical question. Do you think this is a momentary change that no. once government electricity returns one day that <laughs> Lebanese will take off solar energy and turn back on? No. Or do you think this is a permanent shift? Okay. We started this discussion saying that we're going to try to exploit 50% of the space yes. to do agriculture. So the other half. The 50 other percent, we, we use that same technology of recycling single-use plastic to build solar chassis, these will last a lifetime yeah. compared to uh, steel. They're cheaper. And the way we see it, this city as well can achieve uh, power independence by just exploiting the remaining 50% of its, of its roof surface, which now we are aggressively doing as a city. In terms of solar energy, I'm assuming there's a lot more interest in that than vertical farming. Yeah, of course, because it's 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 more urgent. It's more urgent. Are you able? But to no one will turn off solar. The future is so of so the future is solar. The efficiency of those panels, we're gonna see them. Mm. It it follows the same computer models, the, mm. the computer chip models. The bo the the panels are gonna get smaller, and they're gonna get more powerful. But that's actually a good sign. I would not have expected that. What I thought instinctively is that this is a temporary relief measure and most people will be reluctant to maintain what is actually a fairly expensive maintenance fee. Mm -hmm. I assume people will go back automatically. But it's good to hear that you see this going the other way. No, no, there's no way because the energy crisis, the world lives right now, is going to linger for a long time. So you see, this is a global issue, less oh, Lebanese yeah. government oh, electricity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Speaking of prototypes, I know we mentioned this on MTV, but I'd like to discuss it here because it's, it's a unique way of looking at another issue, which is inflation, hyperinflation, devaluing everyone's accounts, and then medical coverage becomes part of the problem. You've been a pioneer, if I may say so, and trying to find a medical coverage prototype that works and something you're testing in Hotel Dieu right now. Yeah. I don't want to speak on your behalf here, but I'd like you to flush it out 
as best as you can, because this is actually a far more interesting, I think, an urgent issue that few people are addressing, but you've tackled it and yeah. you, you've even done your statistical research on sure. it. Sure. Again, this is part of the once everything crumbles, what are we going to do? Yeah. And we said that uh, to rebuild any society, you will need two pillars. First pillar is the, we talked about that, is a free judiciary system because this is how people can deal with each other and that creates trust and everybody needs to be healthy or if they fall ill or they have any accidents, it doesn't gonna break their backs to pay the bills. So the idea was, can we design a healthcare system where the minimum, someone who makes minimum wage can afford medical care? And this is, it's very, it's very tricky and it's very complicated, but it, it's doable. It's not impossible to do. But then devaluation happened, okay? And we found ourselves in an emergency situation where the social security that we have that only gets paid on the 1,500 And rate, it's still 1,500. And it's still up till now, still up till now. I think they, they made it 3,900, which is even more, more ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, but then, so now you have a huge chunk of the population that only has social security that, no, that cannot afford to get medical aid anymore. Retired university professors or current university professors of the Lebanese university, all the teachers of the, uh, uh, what do you call them, the, 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 the schooling system, mm. the, the public schooling system, taxi drivers, uh, employees of the state, so in a way, civil servants and anyone all, that... All civil servants that yeah. only have, or they can only afford to have social security. Mm. Now, social security covers only 5% of the cost. 5%. At the, at the adjusted, at the old rate. At, the, at, at whatever, you at know, the, because, yeah. you know, they, the, the, the social security only covers in Lebanese pounds. So now, a, a hospital... If you go into a hospital and you only have social security and your bill is $100, social security only covers $5. So you have to fork $95. So I approached Hotel Dieu and I said, listen, we, we need to, to work something out. And they were, very, um, they were very open to the idea and they also, let's not forget, uh, hospitals are businesses as well. And they need, they need clients. Yeah. They need clients. So they said, we are willing to give a 35% subsidy to the invoicing of the hospital. They are willing to do it on their side. Yeah. Okay. So, so, now, so now you have a bill for, a, you have a, an invoice for $100. Social security is covering $5. Yeah. Then the hospital comes in and says, okay, I'm subsidizing, I'm subsidizing $35. So now you have $40. 40% is now taken care of. 40%, but it's not enough. Yeah. There's still a 60% gap that still that big chunk of the population cannot handle. Mm -hmm. We thought, okay, what can we do from our side as 
civil society activists or environmental activists or people in the public eye or whatever. I said, I'm gonna try to tap into my network. I'm gonna call upon 1,000 of my friends. <laughs> and I'm gonna say, listen, I need you to donate $100 for a prototype that we are doing with Hotel Dieu, explain it, and bring in the remaining 40%. So this is really a one-man show. You're leaning on your network, your personal network. For the prototype, yes. Wow. For the prototype, yes. I'm going to try to fundraise $100,000 and, and deposit it in the hospital as if the hospital was a bank. And then they will say, okay, we will match your 100000 and then we have the 5% from the social security and then the patients will only have to pay the 20% that remains. May I ask, how far are you in this process with Otentio? We will be signing the MOU next week. Wow. All the graphics are done uh, and I started making phone calls and we already have $5,000. And I'm assuming this is a prototype the way you would imagine it applied across hospitals. Then, so it's not about... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We want to run it one time with Hotel Dieu just because this is the first time something like this is doing. And this is based on trust as well. Okay? And, you know, you have doctors in Hotel Dieu who will be uh, playing a double role. They are doctors in that hospital, but they will also oversee that really there is a 35% discount being given. I'd like to know the follow-up of that journey because this is a very out-of-the-box way of looking at a huge problem exactly. by applying private sector expertise in a private hospital as well, yeah. Yeah. but making it potentially public later. So let me go back to politics a bit. No, a bit. Just one second, let me explain one thing sure. about this. Yeah. Uh, what we hope to do with that prototype is that, let's say Ziad Abishaker works it with Hotel Dieu. We have the template. Hmm. I would want to give the template to another uh, public figure or an MP or whatever. Go do it with Hôpital Orthodox. Exactly. Go yeah. do it with uh, Hôpital Hari uh, Sayyidat Harissa, mm -hmm. uh, Sayyidat Lebanon in, in June. Or, mm -hmm. you know? So let, let ha let's have every hospital take care of their immediate community. I'm asking you not to get too deep here into politics, but just from your experience. Do you find yourself doing this alone because MPs are not able to address this right now? Because I don't think it should be you alone reaching into your network trying to make something work. This should be, if anything, a national cause, and there are allies that won elections. Sure. So why is this really falling on your plate? Because I came up with the idea, and I wanted to try it, and most... Uh, <laughs> A lot of people find my ideas a bit quirky. And the, the first thing they tell you, ah, this will not work. Okay, <laughs> let's try. Let's try at least. You know, people, I told you, people are intellectually lazy. The, the, the grand chunk of, of humans, they're intellectually lazy. They, they, they like to dwell in their comfort zone. But sometimes your comfort zone is not that comfortable. To be fair, this sounds more smart than quirky. 
And actually, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work that should be shared by others. And it's actually disappointing. It will, listen, uh, Ronnie, it will not work. If I do it once, it will not work. But I have to do it at least the first time, work out the quirks of the, of the model. And I say, listen, guys, we have a template. We have a template. If you know some personnel in some hospital in some region, go try do that with them. Tap into your network. Do something good for your community. It, it, it would be, sometimes you'd be surprised how simple it can be. There's a more intimate story I want to get into, and I'll segue there. Um, before the elections, I don't know if some of the audience maybe saw you doing this. You, speaking of doing good for the community, I remember seeing you on top of potholes in Mono. Yeah. Patching potholes and doing it effectively. This wasn't a joke. You actually were doing the state's, you were doing the municipality's job, maybe even better than the municipality. You're saving lives on your own. You had a team too, but it's really yeah, yeah, your initiative. I, I, I you know, you know, whatever I do, I cannot do alone. Yeah. Uh, but I want to, I want to go that route because, I mean, you're doing everything correctly. As somebody that wants a better country, who ran for elections on that cause, on that ticket, and I will repeat your 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 speech, your candidacy speech, where you said, "Don't vote for me if you want." A, B, C, D, E, F. You're basically saying, I'm not the guy to be corrupt. I'm not going to do you favors. And I like that. I actually thought that was a great way to sell your message. Potholes patched pre-elections. You're doing your work on your terms. And you gave me permission to touch on this a bit. The research center that burned down. And now you're putting it back together. Can you expand as much as you'd like on that kind of journey? Even your life's work in Lebanon is burned to the ground. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's in... Uh, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell's work about Greek mythology? No. Joseph Campbell's wrote a very nice book. It's called uh, The Hero's Journey. And he's, he's drawing from all mythical figures of the Greek mythology. And he draws a very nice graph about an individual that is called to live a different life cycle than most people. And he says, somewhere down the road, you are faced with your greatest ordeal. And the way you and the way you interact with that ordeal, it either makes you or it breaks you. The, the research center was burnt down by someone I hired. It was a, uh, it was a homeless guy living in the community where our center was. And people came to me, friends that I know, they came to me and they said, listen, this guy is sleeping outside the church. He has no income. He has no home. He has nothing. Can you, uh, can you hire him? And I said, you know, let me, uh, let me talk to him first. Let me see uh, what state of mind he's in. So he comes in and, and I interview him. And he seemed a bit, uh, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a bit mentally a bit slow. 
he worked for us for about four months, and uh, we uh, we gave him a room in the annex to the research center. And the guys that live also there were telling me that sometimes he wakes up at night and he starts shouting, he starts crying, he has fits. And I said, don't worry about him, he's harmless, he's not gonna, he's not gonna do anything. But it turned out that he was a pyromaniac. And uh, on the night of uh, the 3rd of October, a Monday night, he woke up around 10.30 at night. He walked into the research center and he, uh, he started a huge fire and went back to sleep. Oh, he, he fell back asleep while the fire was raging? Yeah. And uh, the guys had to go wake him up to save his life. But yeah, we, uh, we lost everything. But we're now back. Uh, we've built 40%. And by the end of May, we will be back at 100% production level. You know, in the background, yeah, let's give you a round of applause. Thank you. What I like about talking to you is that you let me be a bit aggressive with my questions, <laughs> and you like it. You told me you like it. <laughs> and you're, all, you're opening your heart to something very personal, and you're okay with it, and you're coming back in May. Um, I'd like to wrap it up with maybe your generation and the way I see my link to your story. You grew up a, a brief window of time, right before the Civil War started. And you actually, you refer to those years uh, in a way that that's the last innocence you experienced. Today it's what? The Lira is at 90,000? 93,000, maybe tomorrow it'll be 100, who knows. Um, you grew up in a country where it was two lira to the dollar. Yeah, five. It was five when I was... You know, when you were growing up, five? Yeah. My earliest memory was about maybe 250, 300 lira. Yeah. I um, remember it when it was 50. You remember when it was 50. <laughs> we know what hyperinflation felt like because we experienced it here when the lira became worthless when the economy was dollarized by default. We know that feeling. We know what it's like to experience post-war relative stability, relative. But we also know what it's like to live in a neighborhood that was marked by checkpoints. And we know what it's like to lose a lot of the soul of the city in post-war reconstruction. We also know what the Port Blast did to this city, your 52, 53, and I think it's someone like you, by whether you want to or not, I don't know, but the fact is you are in love with Beirut and you're still here doing what you can against all odds. I don't know if that type of love is healthy in the end. I have it too. Um, there are two other people that I mentioned earlier. I think in their way, they're doing what they can too. I don't want to There's be... There's a lot of us, by the way. I think a lot of people are trying, but in terms of this sector, this sector of the economy, when we know environmental degradation is getting worse, not better, you're doing what you can. Najat Saliba is doing what she can as a politician. Nasser Yassin, I've had him on the podcast more than once. I don't blame him for not doing more, but I do have more admiration for you. 
because I think you're working your ass off. As somebody in civil society who knows what politics is like, you lost your warehouse, you're putting it back, you're doing prototypes on your own. This is unthinkable. You're doing it on your own, and you're spending an evening with me talking about it. It really means a lot to me. Yeah, same here. So, But thank yes, you, I want to tell you something. Yes, sir. This is not being done okay, foolishly, because, you know, or from a very utopic. I see the potential of this. I see, I see the potential of Beirut becoming the design hub of the Middle East. I see Beirut becoming the fashion capital of the Middle East. I can see this city as well being a hub for alternative cinema, uh, food festivals. I see our economy growing. You know, one exercise we're doing right now, we sit and we say by sector. What does it take for us to bring in a billion dollar exporting extra virgin pure olive oil? How many trees do we need? How many labs? What kind of certification? We're talking about appellation contrôlée, which is like, like the champagne. You know that only the French can produce it and call it champagne. The Italians call it prosecco. Okay? But a bottle of champagne sells probably five, six times more than a bottle of prosecco. So can we do appellation contrôlée for our olive oil? Can we do the same thing for apples? We, we, have, we have a huge potential here that is untapped, untapped because of the militia state of, of mind that has been, that has taken over this country since 1975. And now I'm lucky and you're lucky and most of, of the Lebanese that are here, they, they are lucky. We are living the end days of this militia mindset. I think um, we'll, we'll save it to Q&A, Q&A. <laughs> I want to wrap it up by saying if, if there's a way to look at the whole picture, maybe we're two sides of the same story, maybe. You have high hopes for a future. What you just described is how I look at the past. But I think both could be true to different degrees. We need you in this country regardless. So we'll open it up to Q&A yeah, after a break. I just want to say something about our past. Yes, sir. I hate our past with passion. You do? Yes. I don't. Yes, because our past needs to be deconstructed. Okay? Uh, actually, yesterday I was reading, uh, I was reading a book uh, by uh, Salam al-Rasi. He's a, he's a popular, you know, he, 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 he writes... Uh, popular literature, you know, from, from villages. Do you know that in 1920, when they brought the country together, you know, it used to be Beirut and, Jabal and, and Mount Lebanon as well, but then they added all the, other, all the other parts of the country. All the other parts had to pay tax, but the people of Mount Lebanon and Beirut did not. And when the French commissioner went to Hasbaya, people came to him, his name, Comte de Martel. People came to him complaining that why we have to pay taxes and the others don't pay. And this is how they started applying taxes on everybody. I'll caveat the ending. Not every chapter or every uh, 
journey of our past, the few windows that I think both of us, you know a bit better than I do, where Lebanon was not as screwed up as it is right now. I think that wouldn't be so bad today. But let's leave that section to the Q&A. We were, we were given a country on a silver platter. This is not how countries and societies evolve. We'll put it to the Q&A. Everyone, thank you for a very intimate and difficult episode. Order whatever you want. There's a 10-minute break, and I really appreciate you listening. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Oh, oh sorry. Just a second before the break. Bring back his cardboard cutouts. <laughs> yeah, that too, please. Okay, first of all, I promised you Zatar. This Zatar comes from my vertical farm. You promised me hashish, Sia. No, I did not. <laughs> not on the podcast, at no, no, least. sorry, not on the podcast, right. So this is Zatar. This is organic Zatar, planted in my organic, vertical organic farm. Thank you, sir. But my surprise to you is, what do you need, what do you need for Zatar? Uh, a bong. You need zit. <laughs> zit. <laughs> you need zit. So now, oh wow, I'm giving you the uh, an olive oil bottle. Thank but you. this has this has a uh, this has double tragedy associated with it. This is made from the glass of the blast, and this has survived the fire of the center. So this 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 has special meaning to me and. The, the cork is made from Lebanese oak by an Armenian artisan in Burj Hammoud. And I'd like to have you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Ten minutes, guys. Thank you for the brilliant conversation as always. Hello, Q&A, we can talk more if you sure. Thank you. He's gonna ask. Ready? Always asking. So, guys, ready for the Q and A? Just a show of hands. Does anyone have a question off the? Yes, you do. No. <laughs> I'm ignoring you deliberately. Let's see. Go ahead. Hi, <laughs> hi, uh, uh, Mr. Abishek. Um, I listen to you carefully, and I really appreciate and admire your uh, uh, your uh, positive attitude towards this country and all matters. You you talked about several things. I have two in my mind. I want to ask you uh, with your permission if please, you allow please. me the first one now i'll tell you a little short brief story about my experience given the recycling thing yeah when i was in uh, in the states that was about 13 14 years ago we lived in virginia recycling was not an issue 
Yeah. It was just like here. You yeah, know, you dump everything. But they found out that recycling is something really to study it because the environment is going very bad. So what they did, I found out about that after I left, about four years later. They did two things, which was really exceptionally good. And it did a, a lot of difference in the environment. First of all, awareness. Now, the awareness doesn't come from TV or Paula Yaobian talking about awareness or this celebrity or that celebrity or that politician or this politician. Awareness comes from school, yeah, from nursery, from grade one. Of course. And keeps on going up with you until you graduate. It becomes part of you. There is nobody anymore. Uh, 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 no, nowhere you would hear about it or preaching about it. It becomes part of you. To comes second nature. Exactly. So first, awareness, education. Second, cost benefit. You know, people in the states are just like us. You know, they like the easy way of doing things. Of course. But when you give them an incentive, then they would go for it. First of all, the garbage collector is a private sector. It's not public sector. It's not governmental related to government, collecting money to the government. It's a private. They bring you a big container where you put your garbage. Now, after the awareness of the recycling, they brought you two garbages. Of course. Can. Two bins. Two ones. One is for the food remnants, and the other is for the plastics, bottles, what have you. If you mix them up, and those are free. Free? Yeah. yeah. They stay with you until you leave or you sell your property. Uh, uh, the, the, the recycling thing, if you mix it with a little bit of food remainings, you get penalized. Yeah. If you don't, you get rewarded mm -hmm. by giving you about like 10%, 5%, 20% reduction in your bill for next month. And this incentive, when you think about it, dollars and cents, you're doing two things at the same time, saving environment, doing the, the recycling, on top, you're saving money. And saving your own, yeah. Yeah. And, it and then you go, you go on a social uh, gatherings and you talk about it and you feel proud of it and everybody else would like to imitate you and it keeps on going until now it becomes, it became now free yeah. of all the issues that you were talking about. Sure. Not to mention that industries, of course, are you know, uh, far away from the city, not like Zoom, um, uh, Zoom, Kail and everything else here. So those are the three main issues. I started with it coming from the mentality, the American mentality. I did my job. Yeah. And I separated my garbage. They go down, they're put back together. Here. Yeah. And they go to the... Yeah. Uh, so. Again, we said in the podcast, yeah. this was a waste transportation program. It was not a waste management program. Exactly, exactly. Make it private. 
give me the incentive of doing the recycling, make it a private company, let the lesser government interference in our life, the better we are. It goes electricity, water, dumps, garbage, everything. Uh, Why this place is doing very well? Because he wants to make money. Give it to the government, it becomes a waste. You know, because there are no, there are no accountability. Once you have accountability, all levels, all levels. I tell you about the model. I I fell in love with the model they have in Norway. In Norway, uh, not in Norway. I'm sorry, in Denmark. Um, when we went, when we went to see the incinerator, and to film at the incinerator. Uh, the capacity of the incinerator was 900 tons per day. Okay. And what they did was they split, they split that amount into four entities, three from the private sector, and one was the municipality. Uh huh. Okay. Let's and start with this. They had them compete with each other. Bravo. Voila. This is so the once competition. You create competition. Competition you get, is you what You matters. always get a better price and a better service. Why? Because I if one exactly. if one supplier is not to your satisfaction, exactly. you have you have the option of going with someone else. Exactly. I want I want competition in the cellulars. I want competition in the electricity. Exactly. I want competition in what? We want another airline I, as I, well. I want we, you know, another we don't want a monopoly airport, in another, Exactly. You know, and let them compete. Every time there's a monopoly somewhere. That's it. It's uh, the end of service, it. Service drops. Absolutely. And prices go up. Absolutely. So this is uh, one point of view. Uh, I'm glad you, uh, you uh, uh, let me share it with you. Now, the second one. I'm sure you're not going to share it with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Then let me ask some. No, no, but well, one more, because I have to leave. Please, one more thing. Feel free, ask anything you want. We're, uh, we have nothing to hide. I am and fed we're up. Don't ashamed. Don't, don't speak Trust. for everyone here. I am fed up. And now I'm talking to all Lebanese across, from educated people to people who migrated, to people who got killed, to people who got... Let's face reality. Please, don't tell me stay optimistic. Please. The reality is very pessimistic. Once we face it, once we see it, then we would know what's the problem and how to go about it to solve it. Yes, the solving is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year. No, we were living a very better lifestyle when we were young, when I was young. I'm older than you. Mind you, I'm about 10 years older than you. You, so, uh, you lived during the, the, 60s the golden and the 70s. period where they gave us a country on is a silver this, platter. Is this, it was short-lived. Is, is this a country where you would have just 10 years of blossoming times from 1920 to 2023? Just 10 years? I mean, what's this? Is this a country? No, that means there is a real deep it's problem. It's not a country, I'll tell you why. Because no. they failed They failed to create a social infrastructure. Who they? Who they? Let's Whoever not was blame governing. they. Who are they? Those the, are The us. political class. No, we are, we are the people who brought them. If we were to go and not to vote to all of them, 
then we won't have them. I don't like our voting laws, by the way, okay. and, the, and the circumscriptions, because whoever was in charge, they, they circumscribed the, the regions. You know, this, this is now, they do it a lot in the States. It's called gerrymandering. Mister. And, and, and we cannot always blame the people. Sometimes it is a management problem. Mr. Abi Shakir, let's face it. Sorry, Ziyad. Let's be frank. Let's be frank. We have now two people, dignitaries, in the in the parliament, sleeping, eating. Uh, uh, this is unheard uh, of in the history of the country. Huh? Unheard of in the history of the never happened before. Because they don't belong there. They shouldn't be there. Either all of them would be there to resign. Let's not, let's not act anymore. This is reality. Had it been, had it been a good idea, you would see the media going after them. That means they fail. The media, they is, fail. After, the media is after clicks, views, so and advertising. Problems. So you have problems yet on all levels. The biggest one is the one that we don't talk about, we try to you shy know what away we from do it. To have to have more attention, play, paid for them. When the, when the weather gets nice, we should have a bikini contest in the parliament. It's not a you know. It's not a. No, no. It's boring. I I agree with you. It's a boring issue. We're faced. We're faced with a failed state. So let's agree yeah, on we, this. We agree okay. it's a failed state. Let's not be optimistic, inshallah, because inshallah, Allah won't no. look after you I unless never said and until you look after yourself. So we're not looking after ourselves. We're not doing our homework. This is the homework that I would like to see exactly. happening in all around the country. This should happen in school. The schools are not uh, functioning anymore. This, we are... Yani you private people, you are going around preaching, yelling, screaming, doing the, the best of what you can. You are one person. No, no, I'm not who is one. Fight, I mean, with your, your friends. There are a lot but, of people in other sectors that are doing wonderful anywhere, jobs. Habibi. But again, it's not sexy. It doesn't get clicks and views. It eventually, eventually, always good ideas will come forth. Don't, don't worry. Now about being pessimistic and being optimistic. For me, if I'm if I'm pessimistic, I I cannot function. It's in my nature. We we feel your pain, but well, you 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 had it better than we did actually. You had, you you enjoyed this country more than we did. When when we were growing up, this there was a civil war here, and yet, uh, yeah. I'll set up her microphones when I take you home later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Take care. Is there any anyone that wanted to ask questions about anything we discussed? Please. Uh, yeah. Hard to follow that heated discussion, but um, and I and I agree with both sides. I you know I, I agree with the pessimism, 
I do see some glimmers of light in terms of optimism. But anyway, um, back to um, waste management. I, I also work in the environmental sector. Given the concurrent, unprecedented challenges facing this country, how do we keep environmental issues on the forefront of anybody's mind? You, you've already addressed one issue to keep waste management and, and, and you have that linkage between waste management and health. But it's, it's not only at the individual level. At the individual level is one challenge. It's another challenge at, at the business level. We have, you know, we still use plastic bags. We still have uh, a wide, wide spread usage of single-use plastics. We, you know, in the wake of COVID, there was takeout containers and we've got you know, PPD and, and whatnot. How do we, and, and, and recycling is great, but recycling is not the answer. Recycling has, you know, definite challenges in terms of, you mentioned energy usage. It's also, you know, we have but way more recyclables been, that we can handle. So we, we need to waste on a, waste. On a large scale, recycling. Yes, exactly. But it I mean, be, we need yeah. to do, wait, reduce to be wastage. Mandatory. So how do we how do we reduce waste? And this is not a problem that's necessarily unique to Lebanon. We have, you yeah, know. Yeah, of course. So how do we do this? How do we reduce waste, you know, not only in Lebanon overall, you know. Okay. Uh, uh, let, me, let me point to two examples which I think could, could be wor good working models. For the plastic bags in the supermarket, we can, we can follow other models that were followed in other countries where they make you pay for the bag. Yeah. If you want a plastic bag, you have to pay for it. Otherwise, you have to bring your own textile bag exactly or, or and that's, tote a, that's a challenge whatever. when people and are that, economically strapped yeah. yes when 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 you let people face the fact that they have to pay something even if it's very minute they don't like to pay yeah so that that can can solve a lot of issues for the single use plastic i'm afraid we're going to have to rely on technology and on recycling let's face it go to the supermarket now buy 10 items Eight of them will be in some kind of single-use plastic packaging. For me, as an environmental engineer first and an industrial engineer second, I find plastic to be a fantastic material. It's durable. It's waterproof. It's resistant to the elements. The problem is not the plastic. The problem is how we humans manage this plastic after we use it at least once. And this is why I was saying, when the US, Canada, and the UK, mostly these three countries, used to ship their single-use plastics to China because they did not want to uh, invest in the infrastructure of recycling these materials. But then when the Chinese said no more, they were faced with a huge buildup of stock of single-use plastics, and they said, we have to build the infrastructure for it. So for single-use, because there's a compromise you have to pay, okay? Now, go buy a, a piece of cheese from the supermarket. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a plastic bag, quote-unquote, in a plastic packaging. But what's the alternative? If, you, if I want to go buy cheese now, what, in a glass jar? Uh, what type of and how much it's going to affect it. There's, a, there's an example I give in my lectures when I go to universities. You know, in this part of the world, we use a lot of powdered milk. 
20 years ago, most powdered milk came to our shelves in cans, in big cans, tin cans. But then with the advent of advanced laminated plastics, where they could put that milk and it won't go bad and it won't absorb moisture and it won't uh, mold and what have you, the price per kilo of powdered milk dropped about 70%. Because that can, you have to go mine for it. You have to mine for the metal. You have to treat it. It's a highly polluting, uh, refining uh, process to get you a nice uh, tin can uh, that's going to hold such a fragile uh, item as powdered milk. But then now, a single-use laminated plastic films along with aluminum films, uh, films do a very good job at protecting that food product at 70% savings. So what's the compromise here? If I have to be the decision maker on this, I would say I would want to invest in the infrastructure of recycling that bag. I don't want to go and hurt the environment and extract more metals and more iron from the, from the ground. It is not a technical, technology is there. We've, we've sent people to, we've, we've sent probes to Mars. We can definitely recycle plastic. It's a matter of management and it's a matter of governments having the will, having the will and the, the foresight. Recycling is not, does not only save the environment. Recycling creates economic, local economic activity and it saves a lot of, it, it saves a lot of money on buying new materials. We, f we found out when we were covering the manhole covers that were stolen because they were metal, that it cost one third to make a decent, sturdy plastic cover made from recycled single-use plastics than to go buy a new metal, metal cover. So if you, if you create the market for it, if you create the incentives, if you, if, you, if you build around it a good ecosystem, recycling will work. I've heard the argument that recycling is not the answer. Recycling is the answer, but it has not been done on a wider scale globally. Globally. Are there any other questions? Is that one in the back? Maybe I'll ask. Oh, sorry, gentleman with the suit. Yes. Thank you. It's not a question, but you're right about the technology. But uh, I've been working on different projects, uh, especially <clears throat> of recycling, especially uh, after the, the crisis of 2008. But a lot of them collapsed. Sorry, which crisis? Uh, there was a financial crisis in Europe, at least in 2008. Oh, in and uh, basically all the business model of recycling went down because the price of recycling uh, that was the good. The cost of recycling was too high. Was too high compared to the cost of uh, making of plastic. virgin materials. Exactly. Um, when, um, when was that? Do you have a time frame? Uh, basically, they collapsed uh, like uh, 2018, around this time. There was like... A, 2018? Yeah, yeah. And the projects were easier to recycle. What I mean by easier is that it was B2B projects. Mm -hmm. One of them was to re recycle the polyester from uh, 
hotel sheets on hospital sheets mm -hmm. and with it we could do converters and the other one was the ropes from the farming so it, it was easy place to collect and even with this easy place to collect one was polyester while the other one was polypro at one point uh, it went down because the oil price went too too low so technology is Besides in certain cases where it's really hard, especially I know from um, French packaging, because we mix a lot of uh, plastic with paper, with plastic, and makes hell after yeah. to re-separate everything. Yeah. Um, Unless you develop a process, which we did, where you don't need, you, know, you can deal with laminates, and you can, you can deal with up to 5% in the batch of being paper or carton. Uh, tetra pack does tetra pack packaging uh, so yeah. you're familiar with that yeah we we do recycle it along with the with the plastic bags it's a lower it's a lower quality product but at least it is there and it's there for a long time later on uh, we get killed when oil prices become too cheap it's it's a it's one of the dynamics of this industry but now, since 2019, and it looks like uh, it's not going to become cheap anytime soon. So they say recycling is a poor man's economy. And we have no other choice but to do it. We have no other choice. Are there any more questions? Uh, yeah, please, the lady in the middle. Hello. Hi. Uh, you have spoken about uh, children uh, digging the garbage to look for plastic, and yes. uh, how it works. The general system of, uh, I think, selling waste or uh, what is it if it's okay. not selling? Thank we you. have around town what we call um, yards, scrap yards. Let's call them scrap yards. Okay, and these are around town. You find them. We have we have about eight or ten in Beirut. These are white spaces, and they buy plastic from you. They buy metals. Uh, they buy old electronics, uh, old uh, furniture. It's a scrapyard. So what happens that these kids, uh, they mostly they look up for water bottles. The kind of plastic is called PET. It's polyethylene terephthalate. These are the water bottles, the cola bottles. Uh, sometimes they put um, uh, cooking oil in, in, in jugs. Made out. It's, it's the transparent plastic. And this product is in high demand in China. They make, they, they turn it back into lex, uh, textiles because it's a polyester. It's a polyester plastic. So what happens is these kids roam the city they collect the plastic. They go, they sell it to the scrapyard. They get paid. The scrapyard bale it. They make it into bales. And then they sell it again here locally to a, a factory that's called conversion factory. What they do is they remove the caps. It's automated. This is not by hand. They remove the caps. They remove the labels. They shred the bottles. They wash them. They sanitize them, they dry them, and they fill them in jumbo bags, and they export them. They, have, they send them to China, sometimes they send them to Turkey, and sometimes to Greece. So it's a closed circle. This is where the recycling 
uh, model works beautifully for that material. Maybe not for the ropes, maybe not for the others, but it's coming. You, you know, the way the more we come up with, uh, and you know what the Chinese and the, the Turkish and do with the with the PT flakes, they turn them into fiber, and then they turn them into textiles. All sports uniform of all the football teams and the basketball teams in the U.S. are 100% made from recycled PET fiber. It was not cool in probably 20 years ago, but now this is their marketing mantra. Our, our uniforms are made from 100% recycled fiber. Pleasure. If there are no more questions, I'll ask one. Are there any more? No? I want to, maybe we can wrap it up with this. Thinking about incentive, and then thinking that there are many laws available. There are many laws in the books, but the incentives, I don't see them there. And I'll give you a, maybe it's a silly analogy. You tell me if I'm wrong. Even those short-lived recycling initiatives that are not only the last few years, they go back almost a decade, they were throwing everything in the same bin at the yeah. end. So even a private, or for that matter, an NGO, or a local initiative, they would market it as you can separate, and then at the end, it was all going to Carantino. Yeah. So that's, at least people are saying the right thing, and then at the last stage, doing the wrong thing. Assuming... That's a management problem, by the way. Okay, assuming that that's the best you can do in this climate, that you can try, but it all goes to Carantino. Are there any incentives where you could at least mitigate this problem to a degree? Can you imagine a scenario where someone who doesn't have a state that they can turn to or a private enterprise that's doing the right thing and still wants to be environmentally friendly, wants to recycle? What are the options left? Are, okay. And if there aren't any, could you imagine something like a prototype you're doing yeah. that could fill no, that we have a, we had we had a running program. It's called the Street Recycling Bins Project. We still have the bins at the Marmkhayel yes, uh, yeah. train station. We had them. We still have them on Sassine Square. We had them on Sadiqo Square. But we also faced a problem with the with the with the crisis hitting really bad. And these guys were uh, that pick up the plastic. They don't. They don't just go to the landfill. They they go. They roam the streets. They they pick up the the bins. Uh, the regular garbage bins, but they were trying to break our bins to to uh, because we have we have the openings of them are, are small, so people don't dump general waste in them. So they were breaking the the bins all the time to take out the bottles. So uh, we had we had to remove the bins, but now we're coming back with the program. We're gonna put them in the campuses of schools, and we're gonna give an incentive to the school where. You have to open your campus to your immediate community. So if anyone wants to sort their waste, they can bring it five days a week, six days a week. They have access to your campus. They have access to the bins. They can put their recyclables there. And what the school will get is every time we, they reach mm. a ton of plastic, mm. okay, we will donate a bench made from recycled bands, uh, recycled plastic, single-use plastics for their courtyard. So the incentive is for the school, for the school to attract the community. Yeah. 
and then they get infrastructure in return. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody wants money for their recyclables. Right. That's actually, this is what I could imagine that it's not always a financial exactly. dilemma. That prototype, you just described one way of addressing neighborhood yeah. trash. Has that worked? Oh, yeah. Have oh, you seen? We, I, we have data. Yeah. We have data. No, the schools we have not tried yet. It's not run yet. No, I the, see. The street recycling bins, we had 18 different locations on the regular public streets. We, uh, we found out that the bins were being vandalized. And, you know, now the, the streets are practically, there is no police control. There is no municipal control. It's, it's a jungle out there. So we, we said we have to remove the bins so, so we don't lose them. But um, we will be going back to the schools and, 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 do, and doing this. So this is a prototype and that we, could... We tried it on the streets for, actually I was checking the data today, for at least 1,600 days straight. It's been running. Let's assume on a small scale that could work in the medium term where enough schools adopt that policy. Let's go there. Thinking now about pollution, I know that's not maybe your area of expertise per se, but I think we can talk about it to sure. a degree. Could you imagine that kind of prototype working on generators? So, knowing that electricity du Liban is not coming back in the way it should, and knowing that we're going to depend on generators for the long term, separate from solar energy, could you imagine incentives for generator owners, owners typically referred to as mafia, yeah. that they could filter the smog? or silence the generators. I've only seen one example of this, and it's not the right example. I think it's the wrong example. It's Betroon. Mm. Betroon is doing it in a way that may not resonate with everyone. And I think there's a lot of maybe- What are, what are they doing? Mufflers, filters, and Betroon, I think, is on 24-hour generator power, okay. if I'm not mistaken. You don't hear them, you don't see them, you don't smell them. Okay. I think a lot of attribution is given maybe to a certain politician, therefore, mm. it's not something that's celebrated. I'm being careful, huh? You like that? You like that, huh? That's just for you. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine that that model, remove the name, remove the issue, remove the political name. Could that catch on here? Because Beirut smog yeah, is of course. so severe. But do you know that by law, by, By law, the way, I like that. It's the only moment you turn away from the laptop. <laughs> Every generator in the city of Beirut, by order of by the governor of the city, they have to install at least what is called a cyclone separator. A cyclone separator is a device that can be built locally, and it's not very expensive. And this is a device where the the exhaust rotates inside a cyclone. Mm and all the big particles the, yeah. precipitate. And you could reduce the air pollution by at least 50%. But the municipality cannot enforce it. So it's in the books. It, of course, it's, could, it's a law. In your, the way you think about these problems, private sector, public sector, can you see incentive working like Patron here without municipal enforcement? The only thing that we can think of is to shame the politician who protects those uh, generators that are not complying with the... Uh, they make a lot of money. They don't need incentives. They need pressure. 
They need laws to be applied to them. So I'm going to now go to a slightly sensitive territory. We can wrap it up with the sensitive stuff. <laughs> How are you going to go after Nabih Birri? Shame him. How? Media. We've done that. No, not really. Oh, we've done that for years. Well, we've. You and I have done that. Yeah. Everyone that has tried that we Maybe, know. You know who you know who should who should pressure him. The people who live under his goons and their. Let's focus on. Let's everyone. Let everyone focus on this on the city where where or on the neighborhood where they have leverage. We have leverage in Ashrafi and we're talking with a lot of people that, you know, this has gone on for too long. Now is the time that everybody, at least, uh, if you don't want to put the counters, the counters is, an, is also a, a huge issue, right? They're selling you electricity without the, without the counters, at least environmentally and for the health of all the, the, the neighborhoods you have to install those uh, cyclone separators. I've seen pressure from residents of buildings going to the generator owners yeah. and threatening that they will unsubscribe without the meter. Mm. So that does happen on a small scale, that's true. You can still sue them, by the way. Who? You can sue the generator operator that they did not install the cyclone separator and you can say that by this decision, number, whatever, and uh, if you have enough leverage they can shut him down i don't want to be hard here but let me go down this road a little further have you seen one lawsuit work on that uh, on that issue and i mean it yes. sincerely you have yeah. yes. okay one <laughs> the municipality of beirut <laughs> shut down the generator of the theater of tournesol of what there's a there's a theater in Tayuni. Oh, it's called yes, Duwar Shams. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's funny, and because <laughs> they went after the theater <laughs> because they could not apply the law on the goons of the politicians, they yeah. went and applied the laws on a cultural center, and then we had to go and say, <laughs> we will install the cyclone separator. Just take the take the, the take the locks off. You know what frightens me is that. That's the right way of doing things, and they go after the wrong crowd first, exactly. and then you are picking up. You're picking up that you're. It doesn't matter, but yeah. this enforces my point that the system is crumbling. When you cannot exercise your power, you are powerless. Could I end it with a theoretical question, please? I don't want to echo too much of what my mom was hinting at, yeah. but I'd like that to be the background. We've said this in person and in private, uh, public and private. We don't disagree on one thing, I think. Everything else we more or less see it the same way. I don't think the system is crumbling. You don't think what? I don't think the system is crumbling. Oh, okay. And let me elaborate and I'll give you the, the last word. I think I will live decades of a very, very inefficient, outdated power-sharing model that will live with us as long as Lebanon is a country. Meaning, there will always be sectarian quotas. Sectarianism over time, and I mean this not in a good or bad way, removing emotion, I think it's a descriptive term. I don't think it's good or bad. I think it describes Lebanese for who they are. And I really believe that we're going to live in a sectarian system. We will die in a sectarian system. 
I also think it's an inefficient and very, very corrupt way of governing that's not good probably for many other countries, but that's the system I think that works best for Lebanon, given Lebanon's predicament. And I think it needs to reform over time, and I don't think it will reform in our lifetime. What I'm worried about, and this is the way, I, this is my bleaker assessment, which is why I want you to have the floor at the end. What I'm worried about is that too many of the good, well-intentioned, recent, politically charged Lebanese are blaming the system for Lebanon's ills. I think that's shooting in the dark. I really think the system is in desperate need of being a system that can breathe and do better and finally reform. But that's the system we have. Going into what a lot of us talk about on the periphery, but some of us do in parliament, which is this notion of secularism will solve our problems. The system needs to die so that something else is put in its place. I think we will have that conversation for decades to come and we will still have the same damn system. In that journey, the best people I know in Lebanon do their best, but the success is marginal, very marginal. And I'd like you to tell me why I'm wrong. Just let me ask you one question before I, I go on. Uh, where do you see now strength in the system? Strength? Yeah, where? where in what, what aspect of the system is still strong? I see two things. Yeah. I see the perverted version of the system dependent on Hezbollah. I see the sectarian order that we live in with or without Hezbollah as being Lebanese through and through. I can't imagine it any other way. Now, maybe I'm narrow. Maybe what I'm seeing is not the full picture. But I see that as not just strong. I see that as Lebanon. And I don't see us in any other way. Okay. This is a community of communities that share power in a very odd way. But that's how Lebanon was born. And I don't know if it was been, I don't know if it was born on a silver plate. I think Lebanon was born Lebanon. What happened on the way, your lifetime and mine, is that the Lebanon we talk about died. The Lebanon that we refer to died 53 years ago, and now we're living in a corpse, not a country. That's how I see this country. I don't see it in um, systemic error. I don't see it in society. And I think of it today as the country that maybe uh, had a few chances again to get it right, and half the country went to the street. I don't know if it was you, maybe, maybe it was you. Uh, during October 17, there were talks happening regularly here in Alias. Yeah. I, and I think you uh, yeah, were. I came here. So yeah. I remember seeing you here. I think I've seen so many guests on the podcast talk here. We know what Jamezi was like on October 2019. Half the country, half the country demanded change. I don't blame those people one bit. I don't think it's their fault we didn't get somewhere better. Of like, not. And I don't blame the two MPs sleeping in Parliament. I don't blame ministers for not being able to do more. I think we're hijacked. But the system that we deserve 
is the same system we were born with. It needs to reform. And I mean that in the most sincere way. Now, I want yeah. you, I know you don't see it the same way. You, you have the floor. You, you maneuver that on your terms. No, no, I mean, it's, historically speaking, any entity that had power and governed only ended, the only way that ended it was bankruptcy. You can go all the way to even before the Roman Empire. At one point, they run out of money. And this is why they die. This is one. And this is, I'm, I'm saying, the only lifeline, if you remember when Macron came here after the, yeah. when, when Macron came here after the explosion, what were people shouting to him on the street? Don't give them money. They were telling them, don't give them money. And what did he say? He said, no, 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 on va donner au peuple. We will give, we will give to the people. So they know, the system knows that the only lifeline they have, imagine if, imagine if the money from Sadr 1 came through. We will not be here right now. The dollar won't be here, won't be at 93,000. It was a, it was a failing system that was only being kept alive by injecting more and more cash into a non-productive economy because it is run by a militia mindset of doing things. This is one. Sectarian issues. Our common friend again, Charles Hayek, <laughs> in one of his podcasts, said clearly that if you look at the history of this country, if you compile all the years where we all lived together peacefully, is five to six times more than when we fought. I believe it in the bottom of my heart. We are not sectarian people. It is the politician. This is, listen, this is a class war. This is not a sectarian war. This is people who are rising above the population and milking it from all groups it's about money it's about economy and it's everywhere like this if you go to the states it's a class warfare if you go to europe the history of europe was what why did the french why did the french revolt and, and said egalité liberté fraternité why it's always they will always come. Let's say we were all the same sect here. They will come up. They will say, you're blonde. He's brown. You guys should fight each other. We should fight each other. They will always find. There's, it's, if it's not sectarian, if it's not religious, it could be racial. It could be uh, uh, nationalistic. Whatever. The ruling class will always find a way for ignorant masses to fight each other so they could gain. Finally, a man I used to love a, a lot, he died now. He said something to me, I was very young and I never understood it. He said- Recycle. No. <laughs> I'm joking. He said, 
history in history, there were no statue ever erected for a pessimist. We try. You keep trying. I know your mom is frustrated because she's seeing uh, her days ending and this crisis is not resolving. Again, change takes time. You know what? Time. I'll find the happy medium between us, this comfort that I think both of us are sharing in different ways, which is, it's true, the system is not working. That's a clear fact. But and we, it's going bankrupt. It's, That's the most important thing. It's bankrupt. You alluded to it earlier. It's anarchy today. Yeah. Anarchy in neighborhoods we consider home, and th the society that we understand does not mirror the way it used to. So that's all true. And that maybe there are better ways to govern. That's, there are- For sure, not are, maybe. And you, I'm, I'll only insert this carefully. You mentioned the US, they have the one thing that we should have, it's in our constitution, a Senate. That's how, you, Senate. That's how you reform sectarianism. That to me is reform, but it doesn't mean sectarianism goes away. It just means no. it works better. No. So let's say that's Listen, all. You can always fuel negativity. If you, you know, there was always one smart, evil politician that would, that can brew any type of mischievous actions that they want people to do. Let's assume all of what we said is part of the story. And it's looking at it maybe in slightly different ways. You referred to yourself earlier in a different episode, the industrial engineer's eye, meaning you're able to hone in. Yeah. Maybe I can't do that. I don't have that skill. I kind of look out. Let's assume this is all true. I think what is also true is that a 15-year civil war did not destroy the system. A 15 to 30-year Syrian occupation did not destroy the system. 2005, until the port blast, the port blast and after did not destroy the system. It seems like the system is just simply not working. But if you're right, assuming you're right, I hope I live long enough to see exactly what you're referring to. I would like to see exactly what you're talking about, the birth pangs of it come to fruition. I don't see it. But I think this is the kind of healthy discussion of two people that are 10 years apart, and I think that 10 years is actually quite important. The younger generation, the ones that protested en masse, don't really remember the Syrian occupation. Yeah, but these guys are completely non-sectarian, and this is where we should be, this is where we should be betting. They're non-sectarian, most but, of them, most of them. A I honestly, Ziet, of them I, is non-sectarian. I honestly don't know what that means. What does that even indicate? They're not, they're Lebanese. They're Lebanese, but they're not, they don't need to know. They don't ask you what sect you are. They, they all want the same thing. And, and we've seen them on the 70, I've seen them in that, in that, in that period of time. They were all, it, it's coming, it's coming. I, I, I can see it. I can see it. We're, we're maturing. The silver lining of the civil war, who won the civil war? The Muslim militias. They won the civil war. Let's be honest. 
Okay, this country was created for the Christians. There's only one victory of that civil war, and that's Hafez al-Assad. That's the only victor of that 15-year tragedy. The Syrian regime survived thanks to this country. Where are they now? Hafez al-Assad, dead. His no, son. No, his system. His system? His system is nearly dead. His system is now surviving based on the crooked militia that destroyed this country. Okay. Hezbollah saved his son. I don't blame Lebanese or Syrians for that. How long? That's a good question. I don't know. Again, it's bankruptcy. It's economics. If you cannot generate economic activity, you will not survive. And these are regimes that only know how to kill, how to shoot. They, can, they do not know how to set up recycling plants or bakeries or biscuit factories or any types of productive. They cannot be productive. And this is why they're dying right now. Don't forget, we live in an area. The whole Middle East is not, uh, is not kisses and roses. All regimes across the board are totalitarian regimes. And we're not. Our system is not authoritarian. It's not a military dictatorship. It didn't fight for survival the way other regimes did. It's a crooked system. Perhaps today and over time, over half a century of civil war and nightmare, maybe that's true. It turns crooked. But I don't think, and I'll say this until I die, I don't think the system caused this. And you know what? That's the discussion I think I've had so many times, but I really like doing it with you because you offer two things, a blunt way of describing the way you see this country and you're open to everything. We've talked about in our discussions, forget Hezbollah, we've talked about waste management, health coverage, independent judiciary draft laws, your own personal life in this country, environmental degradation, everything you work on, from public safety to the private sector to the public sector, you're the kind of person I really depend on in this country. So for that... A year from now, we will have a podcast, <laughs> and the only thing we're going to talk about is Hezbollah. Dakhilak. A year from now. <laughs> no. You should be open. We should be, you should be open, and I'm open to discuss this in the open. It'll be called the Paris Banyan. We'll be sitting in a cafe in Paris. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be in Beirut somewhere, I promise you. We should talk about that. I don't, I don't mind. No, thank you. Thank you for talking about everything and more. Ziad, it's a delight. To the audience, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. And I want to say thank you for letting us go into terrain that wasn't exactly what we were going to talk about. It means a lot that you stayed. Next week, it's Mia Atwe from Embrace. And it's actually, I don't know if it's ironic or maybe it's just nice coincidence. Next Wednesday is International Women's Day. And she's going to be talking about men's health. <laughs> so that's quite nice. A nice coincidence. Next Wednesday. Uh, if you don't follow Ziad on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, look him up. The podcast is on social media, YouTube, audio platforms, the Beirut Banyan. Thank you, guys. We did it. We did it. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you.